Uh, we are jumping back into our Colossians series um, after a phenomenal uh, sermon from Adam last week. If you haven't heard it or seen it, you can do so by uh, listening to our podcast or jumping onto our YouTube channel. But I highly recommend that you do it. A little snapshot from it is, is Jesus the cornerstone of your life or is he the stumbling block in your life? So like I said, if you haven't heard it or seen it, I highly recommend that you do so. So we jump back into Colossians, and uh, remember we're asking the question, the big theme question over our whole series, is Jesus really enough? I mean really, is he really enough for our salvation? Are we really pinning all of our hope and faith on one man to be in glory one day? Is he enough for us as the church? Is he enough for us to be the church? Is he enough for us to give us meaning and purpose for our lives? Is he enough for all of the aspects of our lives? Or should we be supplementing him with something else? Other beliefs, other doctrines, other gods, other deities. Well, today we arrive at Paul's, I would say, Paul's quintessential answer to the question, is Jesus really enough? His quintessential argument to it. He's going to tell us that not only is Jesus enough for us, But in fact, he is supreme or preeminent over all things. And if he's preeminent or if he's supreme over all things, he is of supreme value and of supreme worth. Meaning there's nothing more worthy, nothing more valuable than Jesus himself. Because here's the thing, what we deem most important in our lives becomes the center of our lives, becomes the lens by which we process all of life. All of life is ordered around this one thing because it becomes supreme over our lives. It becomes the preeminent thing in our lives. I mean, we can be family-centered. Families are good, right? But if family is the preeminent thing in and over our lives, even above Jesus, then it's not a good thing. We can be work-centered, where work is, has the supremacy over our life. Everything is ordered around it. Family, marriage, kids, faith, church, friends. We can be girlfriend or boyfriend centered, where your friends wonder where you've gone. Or you can be you centered, where it's all about you. You are supreme in your own life. You are preeminent over your own life. Everyone else has to fit in with your schedule and your interests. And so what we found is that there's a group in Coloss who, who didn't have a very high view of Jesus. In fact, they had a very high view of themselves. It was a group known as the Gnostics. And like I've been saying, Gnosticism simply means to be in the know. They were saying, hey, Colossians, you need to listen to us because we have all divine esoteric knowledge on all spiritual matters. You want to find out about God? You want to find out about salvation? Come and listen to us. You need to rely on us. Don't worry about Paul. Don't worry about this Jesus guy. He fits in there somewhere, but you need to listen to us. In fact, to illustrate what they believed about God and Jesus, if you can picture a ladder and God would be on the top of the ladder and they just simply said that Jesus is one of the many steps towards God. He's just one of many emanations towards God. And the more you climbed up these steps through these emanations, the more perfect these emanations would become and eventually arriving at God himself. The implication of that is that Jesus is not God. Jesus is not perfect. 
And so maybe the reason why we don't make Jesus preeminent or supreme in our lives is because we don't believe Jesus is God. And if you're here this morning and that's where you are, I'm so, so glad you're here because we're going to see an amazing, an amazing portion of Scripture that shows just how preeminent or supreme He is. Or we simply believe that He is one of many ways towards God or towards paradise or whatever it might be. Or maybe we do believe He is God and we profess that He is preeminent over our lives, that we profess that He is supreme over all things, it just doesn't show that way in our lives. It just doesn't play out that way in our lives. In fact, other things seem to play out as supreme over our lives. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the next portion of Scripture in Colossians that shows just how supreme Jesus is. Just how preeminent, just how magnificent, just how sovereign, all-authoritative, all-powerful that he is. So that, sunrise, he might take up his rightful place of preeminence in and over our lives. So why don't you grab your Bibles or your Bible app or one of the Bibles in the chair pockets in front of you or somewhere along your row. And why don't you turn to Colossians 1 from verse 15 just to verse 18. Verses 15 to 18 this morning. So Paul has finished his prayer for the Colossians and now he really dives into this, his quintessential argument to show, prove that Jesus is, is uh, preeminent over all things. Just a little disclaimer, it is going to be a little bit technical, so hang in there with me because I really want you to see this. So he goes like this, verse 15. He, talking about Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything, there it is, he might be preeminent. So if you flip over your bulletin, you'll see two points on where we're going this morning, two points on how, just how preeminent Jesus is. Number one, we're going to see this. Jesus is preeminent over his creation. And then secondly, we will see Jesus is preeminent over his church. So here we go. Point number one, Jesus is preeminent over creation. Now, I know some of you might be thinking, Jason, please don't go through the whole creation account. We know Jesus was a part of creation. That's kind of like Christianity 101. Don't go there. So here's the deal. Here's the problem. We stop there, but we don't think, well, if that's true, what is the sustaining, preserving cause of creation? What is sustaining creation? What is preserving creation? And, and many people have come up with a wonderful mystical idea called Mother Nature. Now, if you've watched the movie Avatar, you would see that Mother Nature was a big weeping willow. It's not true, don't write that down. Other people take a far less mystical approach and they say, no, it's the laws of nature. The laws of nature govern and preserve nature and creation. I mean, Elton John, he was inspired by this and he wrote the song, The Circle of Life. You know, remember that, Mufasa, Simba, cool. But here's the question, here's the question. 
Where did those laws come from? Who wrote those laws into being? Furthermore, what is the purpose of creation? Who was it created for? Why was it created? If we don't know the purpose, then how can we have meaning? Because you and I, we are part of creation. We are creatures in creation. And if we can't attach meaning to creation, then we can't attach meaning to ourselves. So when I say Jesus is preeminent over creation, I mean he's more than just the creator of the world. So have a look at this. Have a look at how Paul now begins his argument in verse 15. He says this, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So the first thing he does, he kind of lays the foundation here and he qualifies why Jesus is preeminent over creation. He says he is the image of God. The word image there means two things. It means reflection in the mirror. So whenever Jesus looks in the mirror, he sees God, not that he would do that. And secondly, in terms of representation, Jesus is like God in every way in terms of his character, in terms of his power, in terms of his ability, because he is God. But then you go, whoa, 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 Jason. Why does it say firstborn of all creation? That would indicate that he's created, that he's part of creation, and therefore he can't be God because no one ever created God. God does all the creating, right? That word firstborn comes from the Hebrew mindset, which is understood as a position of status, not necessarily birth. It means the same as preeminence. It means to be first in rank. It means to be first in importance. Therefore, Jesus is not created, but what Paul is saying here, he is of first importance over all creation. Why? Because he's the image of God. Because he's God. This is a a big swing at the Gnostics. Because they were saying, remember, they say, no, 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 no. Jesus is just one of, one of the many steps towards God. And Paul's saying, no, he is the very image of God. He is of first importance over creation because he is the creator. And so now that he's established that Jesus is God and that he's more than just the creator, he's more than just the instrumental cause of creation, he now goes on. Have a look at this, verse 16. He says, now this is where it gets very technical. He says, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now this is going to sound incredibly nerdy, but did you see all those amazing prepositions? I get very excited about words and phrases and clauses you haven't found out by now. But look at what he's saying. He says, all things were created by him. All right, That's what we've established. Jesus is the instrumental cause of everything that he says you can see and can't see, visible and invisible, across two realms, a spiritual realm and a physical realm. And then he says, all things were created through him and for him. Now, we know the Colossian church was being infiltrated by various philosophies and false doctrines and false teachers. Probably one of those philosophies was a Greek philosophy that went something like this. They would say, everything needs a primary cause. Everything that you can see, every created thing, they're saying, needs a primary cause, an instrumental cause, and a final cause. I'll explain that to you. The primary cause is the plan. 
So we, 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 we were planned, right? That's what they're saying. The primary cause is to plan to make something. The instrumental cause is the power. Think, okay, well now, what do we need to make this thing? And then the final cause is the purpose. Now that we've made this thing, what's the purpose? What is it, what was it made for? Now Paul, he's a genius. What he's going to do is he proves to the Colossians here, using this philosophy, using this teacher with all of these prepositions, because most likely these false teachers were sitting there in the church listening to this, and they would have thought, oh, my word. He's proving that Jesus is the primary cause, the instrumental cause, and the final cause. Jesus is the primary cause. He planned creation. He is the instrumental cause, because Paul says everything was created through him. And he is the final cause because he says everything was created for him. For Jesus' pleasure. For his joy. Therefore, guys, creation has meaning because it was created for Jesus. You and I have meaning. We have purpose because we were created ultimately for Jesus. And then he says this, all things, all things hold together in him. Massive truth to try and get our minds around. I read this story about a, uh, a science guide. He was taking a bunch of science students through an atomic laboratory, just explaining different things. And he was, he was explaining matter. And matter is, is, we're all made up of matter. He said, matter was, is composed of rapidly moving electric particles like protons, electrons, and neutrons. And so he's busy explaining this, that you know, we, we're made up of, of protons and that there's actually space between these rapidly moving particles, um, but they always stay in tension. And, and one student put up his hand and said, What's the deal? What, what keeps those particles in place? Although there's space and they're moving all the time, what keeps them in place? Now, what keeps me all together? What, what keeps me from becoming a, from melting here on the stage? What, what stops this, this music stand from crumbling into millions and millions of little pieces until there's nothing left? And the God had no answer. He didn't know. What keeps particles together? This first century theologian tells us, look at verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Not Mother Nature. Not the laws of nature. Jesus, in his supreme, sovereign power, planned, caused, purposed, and now holds everything together. But what exactly are these all things? Paul tells us again, look at verse 16, he says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Now he gives us some examples. He says, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities... Not, not really what I was expecting. I thought he was going to say like, you know, something like the 10,000 bird species that there are in the world, depending on the classification system that you use, or the fact that there are 1,200 venomous fish 
in the world. It's very scary since we're surrounded by water. Or, or the fact that, you know, why does it, there's manta rays, there's parrots, there's turtles. Of all of the amazing examples he could use to show off the creative genius of Jesus, he uses four words all pertaining to power and authority. Now, this is where it's going to get a little bit controversial. Because Paul often uses those words there in relation to the devil and his demons. I'll show it to you very quickly. Chapter 2 of Colossians, we'll eventually get there. He says this, talking about Jesus. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He's talking about the cross. right? So who did he triumph? Who did he have victory over on the cross? It's the devil, right? And so these rulers and authorities refer to him. And then again, Ephesians 6, this great spiritual warfare chapter, he says this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, it's not to say that every time Paul uses these words that he's referring to the devil and his demons, he, can, he uses them referring to normal governments or angelic authority, but it definitely includes the devil and all of his cohorts. So this raises another question. Are you then saying, no, I'm not saying, is the Bible then saying that the devil was created by Jesus, through Jesus, for Jesus, and is being sustained by Jesus? It's a big debate, right? It's a huge theological debate. I'm going to give you a very, very simple answer. You're welcome to go and research it for yourself. I would say research the doctrine of compatibility or concurrence. You'll, you'll enjoy it. Here we go. My simple answer is this. No. Because there is no sin or evil in Jesus, how can he then create it? Remember, the devil and his demons were initially created good. They were initially created as angels. And have a look at how the book of Jude explains what then happened. Jude 1.6 says this, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. What's he saying? Jesus created them as angels, but they chose to rebel against their creator and their original purpose and fell and became evil and twisted. Which then raises another question. Well, how come Jesus didn't see this coming? Right? We're saying that he's this all-supreme, preeminent, sovereign, all-knowing God. Was this like a little faux pas on the side of this sovereign Jesus, creator, sustainer of all things? Did he just not, not see it coming? So you'll notice when I get myself into a really deep hole, I defer to John Piper. So have a look at this. He says, Christ knew that there would be sin and rebellion and evil. And with infinite wisdom, he took it all into account as he planned the history of salvation and the triumphs of grace at Calvary, the cross. Therefore, when Paul says the rulers and authorities were created by Christ and for Christ, he means that God created them knowing what they would become and how in that very evil role they would glorify Christ. Knowing everything that they would become, God created them for the glory of Christ. 
Now, if that still went over your head like it did mine, I thought of two stories that kind of show that, prove that. Two of my favorite stories, one from the Old Testament. In fact, if you're here and you're not a believer, you probably know the story very, very well. Joseph, guy the multicolor, technicolor dream coat. Uh, his brothers were in- incredibly jealous over him, and so they decided to beat him up one day, throw him into a hole. They're about to kill him, and they thought, no, 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 let's not kill him. Let's, let's sell him as a slave. And so they do so. They sell him as a slave. He lands up in Egypt. He gets falsely accused of, of rape, then gets thrown into prison for who knows how long. Cut a long story short, he then becomes the governor of Egypt and eventually comes face to face with these brothers of his. And he says this very famous, Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it. What's the it? The evil, right? But God meant the evil for good to bring it about that many, many people, sorry, many people, should be kept alive as they are today. Think about that big famine and and, and how uh, Joseph took up all this big storage of all the wheat so that there was enough food for everyone. But can you see how important it is to have a good theology? Joseph, in this moment, he gets the preeminence of God over evil. He gets it. That's why he's able to forgive. If he didn't get it, what would he say? He would say, listen, brothers, into the slammer for you, into prison for you because of what you did to me. But in this moment, Joseph gets it. He gets the preeminence of God, even over evil, that God will use it for his glory and our good. Next story. Peter's very, very first sermon. You remember that uh, Jesus ascends into heaven. He sends the Holy Spirit down. They all start talking uh, in strange languages. This, this, This draws a massive crowd And Peter stands up and he explains the preeminence of God over evil. He gets to the part in his sermon where he explains the greatest act of evil this world has ever done. And that is the murder of the Son of God. He gets to this part. Acts 2 verse 23 says this. This Jesus delivered up, in other words, the cross, Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And think, whoa, pause there for a moment. Are you saying, are you saying that, that God killed Jesus? That therefore there is sin and evil in God because he planned it? No, no, look at who is indicted in this. Comma, he says, you Crucified. Who's the you? It's the Jews standing in front of him, the Jewish Sanhedrin. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The lawless men were the Romans. Who's guilty here? They're guilty. God, in his infinite wisdom, in his preeminence over evil, uses the evil intentions and actions of man to bring about his plans and his purposes. And what was his plan and his purpose here? The salvation of all of us. The salvation of everyone who would believe in Jesus, his son, as Lord and Savior. Absolute genius. So Jesus is preeminent over evil and even death. 
I want you to see that, sunrise. I want you to see that Jesus doesn't take away the evil now in this moment, in this current age. That's coming, right? The new heavens and the new, new earth, that's coming, where there will be no more sin, no more tears, no more suffering. You can go read about it in, in Revelation. It's amazing. In the meantime, he promises that he is preeminent over it, that he's working all of it for our good and his glory. I so desperately want us to see that. I want us to know that. So that when evil and suffering raises its ugly head in our lives, as uncomfortable as it will be, we can have an assurance. My God's got this. He's supreme over this. He is preeminent over all the evil in my life, working it for his glory and ultimately my good. That's why I said there's more to Jesus than just being creator. He is preeminent over everything. Cause, sustainer, purpose, and ruler over it. Ruler over all things in this creation, whether good or bad. Let's bring it even closer to home. Last point goes like this. Jesus is preeminent over the church. So just like we said, just as Jesus is supreme over creation and and sustaining creation, Jesus is now supreme over his spiritual creation, the church. Paul says it like this in verse 18. He says, and he is the head of the body, the church. Now, there are some massive statements here, massive implications. So let's just make some really obvious statements or obvious observations so that we can be clear on the glorious ramifications of what Paul is saying here. So firstly, the church here is described as a body. Okay, you don't have to write that down. It's not a building, it's not a program, it's not a, it's not a bunch of curriculum. Those are like modern day byproducts that we've added to it to hopefully serve the body, which is a living, breathing organism made up of a community of believers that meet locally like sunrise, which is part of a larger body or the universal church that has been in existence for over 2,000 years. And then he says, Jesus is described as the head of this body. And the word head tells us two things about him. That he's the ultimate authority over this body. And secondly, that he then provides direction, meaning, and purpose for this body. Meaning, he provides direction, meaning, and purpose for you. So, this then immediately refutes a false doctrine called deism, which is still around today, which says that there is a God, no, no, there is a God, but he is completely separated, detached from creation, especially his church, that he is unknowable. And Paul is saying, no, no, Jesus is not decapitated from his church. Terrible illustration, but in the same way that your head is still on your shoulders, so Jesus is still the head of his church, this church and his universal church, providing life and direction. But how is this so? Because on the flip side, the Bible also tells us that we were born dead in our sins and trespasses, which means we are spiritually separated from God. That we are, in fact, cut off from God. And because of this condition, we face an eternal death or an eternal separation from God. So how is Jesus the head of his church? Verse 18 continues. He says this. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So let's explain it like this. 
The fruit of sin, and we can say the devil too, is death, both a spiritual death and a physical death. So therefore, death is perceived to be the end of everything. But Paul is arguing here that Jesus is preeminent over everything. I think, no, Paul, come on. It's logical, right? Everything dies. Plants die, fish die, birds die, animals die. You and I will eventually die. Death is preeminent over, over all things because it always has the final say. And yes, there are many other religions that have a theory of, of what happens after death. You know, some say you become one with the universe, like a drop in the ocean, or some believe in reincarnation, you know, depending on how good you are in this current life, either come back as a cockroach or, or filthy rich, whatever it might be, or, or atheists and annihilationists believe, no, no, once you die, that's it. You become worm food. In fact, there was another, another bunch of false teachers affecting another church in a place called Corinth who were saying this. They were saying, there is no resurrection from the dead. When you die, you die. And so Paul, it's a busy man, he then writes to this church to refute that false doctrine. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 17, he says, And if Christ has not been raised, as some of you are believing, as some of you are going around saying and teaching, he says, if that's what you want to believe, then, then this is what you need to understand. These are the consequences if that's, not, if that's true. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. If that's true, sunrise, then what are you doing here? Go. Go have brunch. Go hang out on Seven Mile. Go snorkeling. But when you're enjoying your bacon and eggs, what you need to realize is that you're still in your sins. That you're not forgiven. That you're not a child of God. You're still a child of wrath separated from your heavenly Father. It gets worse. He says, verse 18, Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Christians who have died, they've just perished. They've just, that's it, they've gone. They're not with Jesus. Verse 19, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Meaning if you're hoping in Jesus in this life and he hasn't been raised from the dead, Shame on you. That's just silly. That's pitiful. It proves then that death is preeminent over all things. Death does then have the final say. But here comes the good news. Verse 20. But in fact. You see that? It's a fact. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He says, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul uses the term firstborn in Colossians, but here he uses first fruits. Meaning, because Jesus is supreme over death, because he has conquered the grave, he is simply the first of a very, very large harvest of people who will be raised from the dead, who will experience resurrection life within them. Therefore, as the church, we are no longer bound by spiritual death. In fact, we are very much spiritually alive to God through our union through Jesus. Secondly, physical death no longer has a hold over us. Rather, what it does is it frees us into our glorious Heavenly Father's arms. You pass from this world, you go straight into His arms for all glorious eternity. 
if Jesus as the head of the church cannot be held by death, then it goes without saying that his body cannot be held by death. If you want to escape the supremacy of death, then we need to be connected to the one who is supreme over death. And if he's supreme over death, then he is supreme over all things, everything, which is what Paul is saying. And so you know what this means. Jesus' church is advancing and nothing will stop it. It's been advancing for the last 2,000 odd years because nothing is more preeminent or supreme than the head of the church. Remember Jesus' famous line to Peter in Matthew 16, 18, he says this, I will build my church and not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. What's he saying? Saying, I am the preeminent one. Not evil. Not the evil that you will experience in your life in this current age. I am preeminent. I am the supreme one over all authorities, spiritual and physical. Donald Trump doesn't come close. Jesus is all supreme. There was a man who really grasped the preeminence of Christ, which not only had a profound impact on his own life, but on thousands of others. It's a true story. In uh, 1890, 1893, the World Parliament of Religions Conference took place in Chicago. Uh, it was part of a bigger conference called the World Columbian Exposition, where thousands and thousands of people from all around the world went to attend. But the point, the point of the World Religions Conference was to see if they could come up with a way of uniting all of the various religions, in a sense coming up with a new religion of its own. And so religious leaders from all around the world, they, they went to, to go and gather and discuss this. And a very well-renowned evangelist by the name of D.L. Moody, he sat down with his friends to discuss this particular conference, and his friends were absolutely disgusted in it. And they said, D.L., you've got to get down there. You've got to get down there. You've got to attack this thing. You've got to tell them how wrong this is. Not all roads lead to God. It's just Jesus and Jesus alone. And it's documented that Moody sat there listening to his friends. And he said this, I am going to go. But I'm going to go make Jesus Christ look so attractive that men will turn to him. And so his strategy was this. He commissioned other evangelists and assigned them various preaching positions throughout the city. And then he told them this. He instructed them to preach Jesus, the preeminence and all sufficiency of Jesus. He said, tell people he is firstborn over creation and he is firstborn over the church so that in everything he might be preeminent. Reports say that the Chicago campaign of 1893 was considered the greatest evangelistic work of Moody's life where thousands of people came to faith in Jesus. He got it. He got it. He saw the supremacy of Jesus over all things. So if I've understood this passage correctly, the logical conclusion then is that all of life has a cause, a sustaining cause, and a purpose cause, and it's all Jesus because he is supreme over all things. Then our logical response then is to order everything of our lives around him, 
to make him the center of our families, to make him supreme and preeminent over our families. Our work is to be centered on him, the way you work, the way you interact with your colleagues, your clients. You have this high view of Jesus in everything that you do. Our marriages are to, are to be centered on Jesus. And we've got to think as husbands, well, how, does, how would that then affect the way I, I relate with my wife? And wives, how will, that relate, how will that affect the way I relate to my husband if Jesus is supreme over my life? In everything that I do, he's the way in which I process life. If Jesus is the center of your life as a single person, how, would that, how should that play out in your life? And so as we wrestle with those dilemmas, as we fight off other things wanting to be preeminent in and over our lives, here's something that we can think about. I was trying to think, how can I, it's a very technical passage, how can I summarize it that's in a very helpful manner for us? So I came up with this, this sentence. Maybe it's too simple, but it works for me. I was created by Jesus for Jesus and sustained by Jesus for the glory of Jesus. I was, just, I was created by Jesus, for Jesus, him alone, sustained by Jesus for the glory of Jesus alone, so that he might be preeminent, supreme in and over my life. Nothing else has that kind of power, that kind of grace, that kind of love, and that kind of meaning and purpose for your life. Amen. Love to pray for you and really trust that the Lord continues to open all of our eyes to see just how supreme Jesus is. Father, I want to thank you for being with me in teaching this portion of scripture, but I know, I know that there's nothing I can do to make any difference in anyone's life. It's all by you, by you, Holy Spirit, taking your word, your word and opening our eyes and our hearts to see Jesus more and more to realize just how supreme he is, just how preeminent he is, that he is first in terms of importance, that he is first in rank over all things, and therefore our lives should fall underneath him. Holy Spirit, please be at work. Please show us areas where we're compromising, areas where something else is more supreme, something else is more preeminent. Help us center our lives around Jesus, this great, great Lord and Savior of ours, sovereign, almighty, even over the evil in this world, even over the evil in our lives. He's got it. And I pray that that brings a lot of peace and comfort to all of us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.